You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Lord God, we ask now that even as we think about our future glory in you, we ask that you would give us strength and endurance for the present in this life. Through the power of your word and your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today marks the end of our joyful tarrying in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul presents the Christian view of the resurrection of believers in Jesus. Last week, we heard Paul talk about the what of the new heavenly body of the believer, a body that is imperishable, a body that bears the image of the man of heaven, of Jesus Christ himself, this inheritance that is ours through faith in him. And in today's passage, Paul is going to finish up describing this what of the resurrection while also addressing the when of when will this happen. Again, the what Right now, our bodies are perishable or corruptible, subject to decay. Things fall apart. And someone once said, if you are waking up without any pain in your body, then clearly you're not over 50 years old yet. Um, Things fall apart, and we recognize this physically, even while we see the world around us also subject to decay. And yet, this incorruptible body, this imperishable body that will be ours is the reverse. Not only is it perfect in, in, its, um, in its beauty, in its health, um, but also this future body of ours is blooming in life. It's not only that it's not corruptible, it's that the process is reversed. It is springing forth in life, continually blossoming, continually blooming. Corruption as a process is reversed. And this is a body that we get to put on, as Paul says, like new clothes. One commentator calls it an investiture, that in Christ Jesus we will be robed in this new body just the way the king, a king or a queen is robed in their royal robes, signifying their new identity. Our new identity will be one that we get to put on and wear. So that's the what, and Paul dips back into that in this passage. But we also get to see the when. When will this happen? Well, it will happen at the last day. Um, As Roberta Flack says, at last, at last, at the end. I can't do Roberta Flack, so I'm going to move on. It will happen at the last. And Paul says, last, at the last trumpet, not because we have to try to figure out exactly when it will happen by looking at the book of Revelation and counting the trumpets to figure out when, but simply that it will happen at the last day when human history ends, when the world is remade, when Jesus returns and the dead in Christ rise and are changed. And this then is what I want to focus on, is that it happens quickly, like uh, in an instant, in a nanosecond. The word that's used here is the most indivisible form of time. They didn't have language to be able to describe it beyond that. It is an atom of a moment, a nanosecond, the blink of an eye. Lickety split like the flip of a switch, we will be changed. And all of this, all of the sorrow, all of the hardship, all of the suffering, all of the sin of this life will be forgotten. Then, then, then will come to pass what is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul uses this scriptural language to sing and to exult over death's defeat. The poet and the preacher John Donne wrote, Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. It is as though Paul is taunting death now because he knows its eternal fate. Paul lives into eternity in the present moment. And this, as he is showing us in this passage, is what he desires for us as well. Because we, like the Corinthians, are in danger of thinking that we have already arrived. Um, We're in danger of thinking that we've already received the fullness of God's spiritual inheritance for us in Jesus Christ. And this misguided belief can lead to a functional, this world is all there is, ism. Even if we know that eternity is ours, often we operate as though we better enjoy everything that comes our way in this life as best we can, and as though we, we ought not to experience suffering. The Corinthians thought that they were living their best life now. They thought that their sin, too, was not sin because they were so spiritual that they were incapable of doing wrong. Like us, the Corinthians often forgot that they would be spiritually under construction until their death or until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, whichever came first. I I have a confession to make. If you haven't been here all summer, then you missed it. You missed the scaffolding. We've already talked about it. But I actually, I walked into the church last Sunday from the back and everything was so shiny and brand new and perfect, and I, I missed it. I missed the scaffolding. I'm one of those strange people that likes to see things under construction. I missed the scaffolding because this physical building of our church is just representative of the real church. The real church is us, the people of God. We make up the body of Christ. And when the scaffolding was up, we actually got a more accurate picture of our current spiritual state. We are not all shiny and bright and new and beautiful. Not yet. In Christ we are, and yet the reality has not been fully um, accomplished, fully, fully realized until the end. The reality is that we are a mess under construction as God works now to free us from the power of sin. Again, yes, we are free from the penalty of sin because of Jesus' completed work on the cross in the past. And we are free, and um, one, uh, one day we'll be free from the very presence of sin. But right now, God is working to free us from the, pre- from the power of sin. Again, we live in between two times, Christ's first coming and his second coming. And we groan under the weight of our failures and imperfections. We might deny that scaffolding exists in our hearts, but when we're honest with ourselves, we cannot deny the work of God. We cannot deny that all is not as it should be. And yet, in the midst of this, as we see in this passage, God desires for us to experience freedom because of our future and our past. Paul enumerates three freedoms in this passage to help us live for today. Uh, Paul teaches us um, to be free. He wants us to be free from the power of sin and the accompanying fear of death. He wants us to be free from the accusation of the law. And third, he wants us to be free from meaningless or self-justifying toil. First, um, freedom from the power of sin and the accompanying fear of death. Paul writes in verse 
56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. This little verse can get lost, and that yet this has to do with our presence. Because we know that the wages of sin is death. But where sin is pardoned, then death has no sting. As we are hidden in Christ by faith, buried into his death through the waters of baptism, we're freed from judgment. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As Matt Schneider highlighted a couple of weeks ago from this pulpit, the New Testament often calls the death of Christians sleep. And this is not meant to be a kind of euphemism, but it is the most accurate picture of what is actually happening theologically when we die. Because our resurrection is sure through Jesus Christ, Sleep is the truest way to talk about the death of a believer. Death's fangs have been clipped. The venom has been countered. And we approach it with fear, and yet our fear is not a final fear. Our fear um, is lost because Christ has won the victory. It is not up to us, and he has done it. So that's first. Second, regarding the law, Paul says elsewhere in Romans 7 that though the law is good and promises life, the law actually increases our sin. The power of sin is the law. If it had not been for the law, we would not have known sin. And we see this phenomenon with the eternal moral decrees of God revealed to his people through his word. In other words, the commandments, the Ten Commandments and others. But we also see this principle present in any kind of ideal that is presented to us. Ladies, perhaps you can relate to this. Um, when I first moved to New York City in 2001, I met a friend of my sister's and um, wanted to become her friend as well. And she was a coloratura soprano, and she was blonde and the most beautiful woman ever. And she was so perfect. She seemed so perfect that I looked at her and I just thought of how much I didn't measure up according to the world's ideal of feminine beauty. She seemed like walking perfection to me, and I didn't like her. <laughs> I didn't like her because I saw how I didn't measure up. When we see some measure of beauty manifested, the old us hates it and wants to destroy it because we feel judged by it. In the presence of perfection, we are all too aware of our own faults, failures, and sins. The law does this to us. God allows it to do it. The law kills us. It kills our sense of self-righteousness, our sense of working towards something, because when we hear the law, we become aware of how much we fall short. Yes, of, any idea, of, of an ideal that might present us in the moment, but especially of God's perfect moral ideal. I ended up getting over it. She was really kind and beautiful on the inside as well as on the outside. And I just wanted to be her friend so much that I, I really did, by God's grace, get over it. For us, when we encounter the law and the perfection of the law in this life, um, we have to remember that on the other side of the resurrection, we will be perfect. We will be like that, um, or what we perceive that is. We will wear an imperishable body. By God's grace, we will have finally fulfilled the law. We've done nothing. We've done nothing except admit our need for God's gift and for God's work in Jesus Christ. We will have put on the rich clothes provided for us. We will have stood on the rock that is higher. We will have walked by faith into the inheritance promised to us. So now, if the devil accuses you through the law, even after you've repented, 
Then fix your eyes on Christ's completed work and echo Paul's taunt found here. Oh, death, where is your victory? And even you can add to it a related taunt. Accusation be gone. Sin holds no permanent sway here. I'm reminded when I think about this of Martin Luther, who was known to yell or say to himself, I am baptized when he experienced temptation or accusation. Luther saw baptism as a shield against all assaults of the scornful enemy, an answer to the sins that disturb the conscience, an antidote for the dread of death and judgment, and a comfort in every temptation. Because in baptism, we have a present tangible sign of our future and certain reality in Jesus Christ. Even just in the little white dresses, we think we will one day be white and pure as our lives are washed in the red blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. That comfort comes in the midst of accusation. And so remember, sin and the law that accompanies that accusation do not have the final word. Christ has the final word. And in him, life and grace will reign in us today through the power of the Holy Spirit. Third, and finally, the future reality of death's defeat affects the way we live and the way we labor in the present moment After Paul's crescendo of joyful exultation in Paul's past and future victory, he encourages the Corinthians in the present to stay the course. He writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I could rest right at verses 55 and 57 forever with exultant and grateful victory in Jesus Christ. But joy, the joy that comes from the resurrection, is meant to give us a purpose. Sometimes we might find ourselves purposeless in this world. We might operate apart from this purpose. We might say, well, I don't need to be here, or I don't need to do that, or I don't need to read my Bible. But honestly, if death is not defeated, then that's the way to go. If death is not defeated, why bother coming to worship on a Sunday morning? Honestly, the lake is beautiful. I'm not a golfer, but I'm guessing that golf is better in the cool morning hours. And Birmingham is getting some really good brunch places. You know that if I ever stopped believing, that is where you would find me, with a good novel and some stuffed French toast. Paul says earlier in this chapel, chapter, excuse me, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Indeed, last week, Cameron Cole said in his wonderful sermon, if this, this life, is as good as it gets, yeah, go ahead, enjoy it. Enjoy it to the fullest. Enjoy it uh, as, as much as you like. Live it up. But yet, if this life is, a, is the worst that it could ever be, we have hope for the future, and we can look for the future. Again, for us baptizing babies today, why bother? Why bother baptizing our children? It's a lot of work for just really pretty pictures and some um, white dresses and putty floors. I know you've all put in a lot of work today. But this is not all there is. Why bother doing it if there isn't the surety of resurrection for those who believe in him? And even more intense, as we've taught you, why bother raising this child to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? That'll take a lot more work than getting the dress and the putty floors. Again, I could think of so many other examples of why bother in this life if there is no resurrection for us. 
And there are so many examples. I hope there's an example in your mind that's gripping you that you just can't get through um, without looking to the future. And yet the looking to the future will give you hope for the present. But for right now, I can't get past my own uh, present situation. For, the, for, the, for me this morning, honestly, as I get to preach for the last time in this pulpit, I ask if there's no hope of eternity spent with God and with those who believe in him, then why bother investing in so many heartfelt relationships? Why care about each other if it'll all just be lost in the end? I remember in college, I got to be a part of a fellowship during the summer of college students who were Christians through the um, Fellowship of Christians in universities and schools named Focus. And we spent a whole summer together, about eight of us, living in a house on Martha's Vineyard and working in the area. And it was a little bit like um, the real world, but like the Christian version. There's lots of conflict and it was hard to invest in relationships. And the, um, the couple that led it, conf- well, the woman in the couple, the wife, confronted me and she said, you're holding back. You're not investing in relationship. Is it because you know you're going to be going back to school at the end of the summer? Are you a short timer? Are you just living for now instead of living for the future? Do you forget that you'll be with these people for all eternity? She said to me, go deep. Don't be afraid to go deep, even though you will say goodbye at the end of the summer. Leaving hurts me. And I, I know leaving hurts some of you. So why bother investing emotionally the way that we have for almost seven years? Why bother? Because we believe in the resurrection. And so thank you. You have labored to welcome me. You have shared your lives with me. You have received me into your homes and into your hearts. Your work is not in vain. Thank you. Even though I'm leaving, your work is not in vain. And on my part, I echo the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Even if my heart breaks at the thought of being apart. I'll labor on in a different corner of God's vineyard. But you know that the labor is the same and the Lord is the same. The gospel is the same and our resurrection hope is the same. The joy that I've gotten to experience, and I hope some of you have as well, in fellowship um, with each other here in this place is not lost. By the grace of God, he knits our hearts together. God builds through our relationships something that will withstand time and even death. We withstood the scaffolding all summer. We, were, it, we endured. We were courageous. We trusted in the future outcome, this beautiful space. Um, And we can trust now, even in the midst of hard things, God is working in us. So as you labor, as you continue on in serving the Lord, in loving one another, in proclaiming the good news to those who don't yet know Jesus Christ, remember, your labor is not in vain. Christ has toiled on our behalf. He has labored on through death, even death on a cross, so that the work is actually already finished in him. And there's this beautifully perfect outcome to be received on the other side of death. So again, as long as life might feel now as you labor through sin, as you labor under the accusation of the law sometimes, as you labor and work hard for the sake of the Lord, 
remember in Paul's words that this will all be changed in a moment, in the blink of an eye. We will be perfect. We will be raised imperishable as Jesus Christ now is. There will no more be sin or sorrow or sighing or goodbyes or dying. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your past work on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for the completed picture that we get a glimpse of, our future reality in you for all eternity. And thank you, Lord, give us grace in the midst of this major construction project to keep our eyes on you, trusting that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so I say, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.